Welcome to Myth the Ladies, the podcast where we talk about women from mythology and folklore all over the world. We're your hosts. I'm Zoe. And I'm Lizzie. And uh, how are you today, Zoe? I'm all right. Um, it is finals week, and so that's exciting. Um, I have a Russian exam tomorrow, and that's pretty much my only final left because everything else was projects. And it's going to be fine because it's open note and I'm not too stressed about it, but I'd like it to be over because I'm tired of having to do school things at this point in the semester um but yeah, yeah you're just sick of it at some point yeah and it's also like because it's the only thing I have to do at this point is <laughs> just take the exam and it's been like three days since I've had any academic stuff going on because it you know it was the weekend and now it's uh and it's not till Tuesday so it's like kind of annoying um but like I'm making it I'll get it there eventually. I've been studying a lot. I have my notes sheet and everything, and it'll be fine. Like, I'm good. That's great. And you had a birthday, yeah. right, since we last talked? Oh, yes. I did have a birthday. I'm 21. I Ooh, am. So exciting. That was exciting. I had a good birthday. Uh, my mom sent me a cake um, and some flowers, oh. so that was really fun. And my friends, uh, I had a friend who made me a fun drawing for my birthday, so that was really exciting. It was very fun. Um, I saw the drawing. Yes. Yes. Um, when I saw it, I like couldn't speak for like five minutes because I was like laughing so hard. And then someone else in like the dorm hallway had came out because she thought I was crying um, <laughs> because I was just like hyperventilating. Um, it was really good. And it was um, Tommy Shelby yeah. from Peaky Blinders speaking German. It was Tommy Shelby. Yeah. From Peaky Blinders speaking German because the friend who made it um, also speaks German. And uh, sometimes we speak German together. So that was fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And um, this today's episode is going to be the first episode of 2022. Yes, it is. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that wild? It's very fun. So this is going to be our yeah. technically the third year, like year, third year, year, but it's but our first second, like actual full year. Yeah. 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 Um, and even though it's our um, it's the first episode of the year where it's not a themed episode because that didn't work out for what we need to do. But you'll get a themed episode next week. So everything's exactly. going to be fine. I know everyone's champing at the bit for an episode, <laughs> a themed episode. But you just have to wait one or two weeks longer. Yeah, two weeks, I guess. Yeah. So two weeks longer. Um, but we'll ha- we'll get it to you. It'll be there. Promise. Yeah. Yeah. So Lizzie, how are you? I'm awesome. <laughs> I um my sister got engaged. Oh my goodness. And I'm so excited about it. And so shout out to Emily and Chris. And I yes. will force her to listen to this. Yay! Congratulations, <laughs> Emily and Chris. Yes. Yeah. Very, very exciting in my life. And I mm-hmm. have no idea when the wedding is happening, but I'm yeah. super happy. Yeah, I think that's how engagements go. Yeah, I have no idea. I've never been engaged. Like, at what point do you start, like, being like, oh, wait, we should start start planning for the wedding? I don't know. I don't know. I'll- On The Bachelor, they just get engaged and then, like, <laughs> don't do anything for a really long time. And then they're like, oh, we broke up. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> Fair but enough. But what about love? What about finding love? Um, um, as a bachelor anyway. aficionado, have any bachelor couples actually survived more than, like, a few um, years? Yeah, some of them, like the first Bachelor 
couple are still together, um, like ever. And then there are a few other couples. Then there's a few couples that um, The Bachelor, like, didn't end up with the person that he chose at the end, but ended up with someone else who was on a season. Um, and then the same with The Bachelorette as well. There's a few more successful Bachelorette stories than Bachelor stories. Um, and But overall, a lot of them break up. Um, That's not a shock to me. Shockingly. Yeah. Um, it doesn't work out. Um, um, anyway, it's <laughs> on my mind because the Bachelorette season 18 season finale is next week. So we're going to find out who Michelle chooses to be her soulmate. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. I, feel like I know who watches The Bachelorette. Yeah. Um, yeah. And speaking of my sister's wedding, I texted her asking if I could wear a suit to her wedding. And she said yes. And that's all I know about the wedding Yay! so far. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's going to be so fun. You're going to look so good. Thank yeah, you. I'm really excited about the potential suit that I'm going to buy. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So mythology. Yeah. Mythology. So who are yeah. we talking about today? <laughs> yeah. So today I'm actually pretty excited about this um, because... Uh, I realized when we, I was doing figuring out who I wanted to research, we hadn't done a Korean lady yet, like at all. I don't think even in any of our themed episodes. So I decided I wanted to do a Korean woman. So today we're going to be talking about Princess Pari, who is uh, a significant figure in Korean shamanism. Great. So, yeah. So quick, just quickly, a brief overview of Korean shamanism, because um, I didn't know a lot about it. I still don't know a lot about it, but just a basic overview um so the main it's so the main folk religion of the korean peninsula is known as korean shamanism or muism and it's an animistic religion that consists of god nature spirit and ancestor worship and the key figure in the community is the shaman or mu and they are considered chosen persons and responsible for serving as an intermediary between spirits and gods and humanity mm-hmm and so one of their main tasks is to oversee kuo rituals, which are rituals often involving sacrifices, rhythmic movements, songs, oracles, and prayers. And Muism has been influenced by many other religions, including Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucianism. And it has in turn influenced other new religions, such as Shondogyo and Chungsunism, which are both really newer religions in the Korean Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And it's also similar to Chinese shamanism. So on to our lady. Uh, again, Princess Bauri is a significant figure in this mythology. There are a ton of different variations of her story found throughout the Korean Peninsula, with the exception of Jeju, which is an island off the coast of South Korea that tends to have a more varied mythology than the rest of the peninsula. Um, as an armchair folklorist, probably my guess is that it's because it's an island, so there's just less cultural interchange since it's more isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I'm sure people who know way more than me have studied that more. Uh, there's over 100 different versions that have been recorded as of 2016, and that's just re- versions that have been written down. So there's probably like way more that just haven't been written down and more that might be developed in the future. So that's really cool. Mm-hmm. And most versions of the story are performed during kula rituals dedicated to the dead. So she is heavily associated with the dead and funerary rites. And it's also considered to be one of the myths about the origins of Korean shamanism. So, the general version of the myth is as follows. There is a king and a queen who get married, and the queen gives birth to six daughters who are all treated well at the palace, you know, treated like princesses. Mm -hmm. And then the queen becomes pregnant again, and she begins to have prophetic dreams. So she and her husband assume this means that she will finally bear a son, and they begin to prepare for his arrival. 
However, when the child is born, it turns out to be a girl. Disappointed by this, the king orders her to be thrown away and names her Pari, which is taken from the Korean word Puri, which means to throw away. That's a very mean name. It is a very mean name. The legends differ at the moment of her abandonment. So in some stories, she is abandoned multiple times as each time she is protected by different animals. Mm -hmm. But after she is finally abandoned, she is rescued by a helper. Sometimes it's the Buddha. Sometimes it's a mountain god. Sometimes it's a stork. Sometimes it's other things. Uh, but regardless, this helper generally raises her into adulthood. So once Pauri grows up, one or both of her parents fall ill. When they look for a cure to this illness, they find out that the disease can only be cured through the medicinal waters of the Western Heaven. So the king and queen ask each of their six daughters to fetch the water for them, but all six of them refuse. So, um, well, in some stories also, the disease is a direct punishment for casting out Princess Pari, who is a divine gift from Heaven, and they must find their lost daughter. Um, but in any case, all of the other daughters refuse, or if they actually are experiencing a divine punishment, they have to find her and they send for a princess Pari and she returns to the palace and once she returns um she agrees to go to the western heaven and in many stories she leaves the palace disguised as a man and begins her quest that's really fun mm -hmm. i love cross-dressing it's really in, yeah it's a really in interesting myths. detail yeah. actually i don't know i feel like we don't see it as much in myths in general true yeah uh, it's more also, of a folktale legend saga yeah or Shakespeare play. Yeah. Uh, Are you referring to Twelfth Night? Well, there's a lot of Shakespeare plays with cross-dressing. Oh, I don't know that much of an expert. Well, neither am I, but yes. I mean, you clearly um, know more than I do. Well, I did just have my exam on theater history, so I can talk about how cross-dressing was a big theme of the Baroque era in plays exploring the question of identity and illusion, but we don't need well, to Well, that sounds really that right fun, now. though not relevant to our current topic, but yes. I will love to hear more Anyways. about it later. <laughs> Anyways, so the details of the quest vary a lot depending on the region the storyteller, which to me makes a ton of sense. I feel like quest narratives where it's very episodic allows for a ton of variation. Quests are really fun. Yeah, I love it's like they meet this person and then they meet this person and they have this challenge, you know. Mm -hmm. But in one of the oldest known versions, she meets the Buddha after going 3000 leagues. Uh, he is not fooled by her disguise and figures out that she is a woman and asks her if she is truly willing or able to go another 3000 leagues. She responds that she is and will keep going even if it means she will die. Wow, okay. And as a reward for her answer, he gives her a silk flower that turns the ocean in front of her into land for her to cross. Oh. Yeah. Um, at some point, she also liberates hundreds of millions of imprisoned dead souls. Oh, wow. So, th yeah, that's cool. I couldn't find more details about that than that it happened. But Oh, and they were in like a giant tower. But This sounds really fun. Uh, I wish I knew the details, but yeah. oh well. Yeah, it was hard to find, like, sources and analysis that were in English. Yeah, fair, um, yeah. Or in languages that I could read. Like, I have a French source, but I can't read Korean yet. <laughs> Who knows? Um. <laughs> about the future. Yeah, anyway, eventually, she, yeah, she arrives at the source of the medicinal water. However, the guardian of the water also realizes that she is a woman and requires her to work for him and bear him sons before she can take any of the water. Oh, okay. So in some stories, she bears up to 12 sons before she's able to take any of the water for herself and her family. Wow, okay. Must have been a really yeah. long time she was yeah. there. Yeah, although, like, yeah, well, finally, she is able to take the medicinal water, and also she takes some flowers of resurrection. 
uh, from the area, too. But when she returns on her journey, it takes so long, and she's been there for so long that when she returns, she finds out that her parent or parents have already died from their strange disease, and their funeral is being held. Yeah, fair. I mean, if they were already sick, and she was up there for a really, really long time, I guess that's to be expected. But that doesn't stop her. So she runs in, interrupts the funeral procession, and forces open the lids of the coffin. Using the flowers of resurrection, she brings her parents back to life, and using the medicinal water, she cures them. Oh. Oh, that's so nice. She's yeah. such a good daughter so, that I didn't even like her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we'll talk about that. Um, oh. But, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but usually after this, she becomes a goddess, and she is considered the patron goddess of shamans. Oh. Also a conductor of dead souls, and she represents the Big Dipper constellation. Oh, how cool. Yeah. So that is the general story. Obviously, again, tons of variation. But what are your thoughts? Okay, so I really wish I had, like, more details about, like, all these scenes because they sound so fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she's so cool. And I think there's probably a lot of, well, probably you're going to talk about this, but about how she's so, like, filial and loyal to her parents, even though her parents cast her aside and didn't want her and named her trash and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, yeah, shows a lot of strength of character, and I think that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, I really like, I I like themes where it's like, you have to travel all across the world to cure this disease in, like, this really obscure way. Um, I think it's really fun, and, Mm -hmm. and I think it's cool that she released a ton of dead souls and, like, became a goddess and stuff, and Mm -hmm. she's very cool. I like her. I want to hear more about her. Yeah. So first, I want to talk a bit about some variations just for funsies. So in the West Central part of Korea, there's a strong Buddhist influence. She's always helped by the Buddha. When she is abandoned as a child, he brings her to an old childless couple that's looking for good karma. So Buddhist influence there. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that was later or if that was in also like kind of earlier versions. Yeah. I think that's just something that's hard to tell. Yeah, the Eastern and Gyeongsang traditions, and Gyeongsang is a province in southeastern Korea, they give more details to the parts of her quests, and that includes the fact that the guardian of the water is an exiled god who must have sons in order to return to heaven. So that gives like more explanation to why she had to bear him sons. Yeah. Um, it's still not great, but to I mean, me it's, it's like, okay, at least there was a reason. I mean, it's it. rather coercive, like, but yeah, I guess he was also like, on his you know, quest. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, maybe they were like, I help you, you help me. And she was like, okay. I mean, yeah. I don't know. That's what I want to believe. Uh, but still. Benefits. I don't you know, know, quid pro quo, etc. You know, still not great, but it makes more sense to me, which is good. Yeah. And then so the Chila province, which is in the southwest, uh, those traditions tend to have less details, including um, they don't have the detail of her dressing as a man. So I mean, I guess it's fact. not really that important to the plot. I just think it's a fun detail. Yeah. I mean, so it sort of makes sense because it's, like, safer for her to travel dressed as a man. I mean, um, yeah. But then also, it's not a very good disguise, apparently, because everyone can see through it. Or at least the significant characters can see through it. But it's also, I guess, the sort of um, superhuman characters kind of can yeah. see through it, mainly. Like, the god can see through it, and then the Buddha can see through it. And it's like, yeah, he's technically human, but he's sort of beyond human status in a way because of how significant he is as a person yeah Um, i mean yeah that makes sense that uh, fellow humans would not be able to tell but like 
religious yeah. and spiritual figures would be able to. Yeah. And then there are two northern versions that both originate from South Hamgong. In one of them, Princess Pari cannot reach the water on her own, but needs divine mercy in order to get there. And then she dies at the end of the story without becoming a goddess, and her resurrected mother dies once again soon after. So this sort of takes away a lot of her power as a character, as a figure in legend. And when she crossed the water, that's like her getting into the heavens, right? Because I know a lot of yeah, a lot of places have you crossing a river to get into the underworld. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like that, I think. I think, I mean, I'm going to talk a bit about this later with like the construction of the underworld or like the the spiritual realm in like the Korean conception of that in like the spiritual uh, traditions. It doesn't seem to be like, it's sort of on the same plane and you just kind of have to walk far enough in order to get there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but like, by changing the sea into land, it's easier to cross. Yeah, you know? she was like able to safer because of that divine. You can walk instead of like having to get a boat and worry about storms and yeah, finding food and water and stuff. You know, mm-hmm. like objectively. Yeah, um, but the diminishing of her role in the north is likely due to the greater importance of a local funeral goddess named Chungjungashi. So that's interesting, you know, like, I mean, it makes sense because she's really important to funerary rites. But if they already have a goddess for funerary rites, then like they don't need her, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then finally, there are many parallels between this story and the Manchu tale of the Nisan shaman, which tells the story of a woman who resurrects the son of a rich man. So, yeah, that's a potential story that's like linked to this story as well. Mm-hmm. Um, another woman who resurrects the man. So, yeah, that is... A lot of the different variations, of course, there's a lot more, but those are like the most notable regional variations, I believe. So as we talked about before, I think it's really important to look in this story at like the context of Confucianism, because as I said at the beginning, um, Muism is influenced by Confucianism. And you can sort of see that in this story. With like filial piety. Yeah. Well, yeah. Filial piety is a huge one. So um, Lizzie, what is filial piety? Like, how would you define that? It's like you have to obey your parents and be loyal to them like your whole life and serve them. And when you're a parent, your child also has to do the same thing. The parents are like really, really important and you have to adhere to their rules and you have to be, yeah. And being a good child also involves like yeah. ignoring if they treat you badly, etc. It's best mm-hmm. to be really, really good to them and loyal to them no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's really basically it in my understanding but yeah so confucianism is all about like different relationships of power mm-hmm. and and like different like so one big one as we just talked about is between parents and child and the parents have power over the child but the, the child should still respect the parents and then another big one is the relationship between man and woman and how um, women are inferior. Yeah, the man is considered superior to the woman. There's a ton of Confucian texts that are like women are evil and like like they do bad things. They have a tendency to do bad things. Yeah, Confucius um, is all about women are inferior. Yeah. And also basically the idea of order concept of order in Confucianism to my understanding is that like even though there's a different like power dynamic, everyone should still like behave properly in their roles and then everyone will be happy Mm -hmm. even though like 
some roles are more powerful than others. Um, so yeah, again, Confucianism is super patriarchal. Women are less than men. Women have to work not only in the fields, but also serve as housekeepers, cooks, and raise their children. And even though they do so much work, women are only valued for their ability to produce more sons. Mm -hmm. And then it also emphasizes the importance of fil filial piety, loyalty to one's father and parents. And so, yeah, as you said earlier, Lizzie, Princess Pauri is a great example of filial piety. She's willing to go to the ends of the earth to save her parents, suffering incredible odds and difficult tasks to save them. Like, she literally is asked, are you willing to go, like, 3,000 leagues more? And she says, I'm willing to go until I die. Like, yeah, and that's even in spite of the fact that she mostly grew up away from them. Yeah, like, she grew up, she was cast out by her parents, and she grew up without them but she still has intense loyalty to them simply because they're her parents mm -hmm. which is very powerful like example of that sort of loyalty also i sort of wonder i actually don't know because i didn't think of this until now but like what does confucianism say about like abandoning your children as a parent like i'm guessing that's i would guess that's probably not good yeah i mean because they're not going to play other roles but i'm assuming that you would still have to be pious when given the opportunity yeah. so like I'm guessing that maybe the parents aren't acting in a way that's, like, appropriate in Confucian standards. But I genuinely do not know. So, um, yeah. But also she uh, subverts sexist Confucian ideals because she's an example of a very powerful woman accomplishing great deeds and doing incredible things while also being a model of Confucian piety. Um, so, again, the Confucian belief is that women are always weaker than men and cannot accomplish what men can. And also that women are morally weaker than men. Women are generally going to do like worse things than men. And so in this story, it almost it's almost subversive in a way, because we're showing like this woman, this woman who is cast out for being a girl, which is like, you know, sexist. She's not the son that they wanted. But she ends up proving that she is just as good. She can do anything that a son can't do. And even to, more um, so than her other herself. sisters, too, because they were refusing to go to the Western heavens and get yeah. the water. Yeah. But she said, no, I will do it, proving yeah. that she is the best child. The best child. Yeah. The she is basically proving it. herself to be the son that they wanted without actually being a son, you know. Yeah, which also goes with the themes of how she was cross-dressing. Like, yes, actually, I was thinking about that. You know, like she dresses up as a boy, even though she's not actually a boy. Which I wonder is, like, is it symbolic of her, you know, representing the role of the son, even though she is, like, a girl? Yeah. Which, I don't know. It's very interesting to me. So, then, writer Yun A. Lee relates the story of Princess Pari to the Korean concept of Han in her article, The Value of Embracing in Korean Common Pain and Struggle, Han in a Korean Woman's Perspective. So, according to the article, Han is a feeling of suffering from the bottom of one's heart often from feelings of abandonment or shame, and it can only exist within the context of an already present relationship, not between people who do not already know each other. And so it can manifest itself in a desire for revenge, or also in myeonjung, which means love transformed from hate. Oh, interesting. So, in Princess Pari's story, her father rejects her because she is a daughter, not a son, as we discussed. However, when she hears about her parents' illnesses, she chooses to go, even though no one really thought she could do it. Like, since she's a girl, she's considered weak and useless, unable to complete such difficult tasks. However, she ultimately proves this theory wrong by accomplishing all the tasks and bringing her family back to life. And so, Lee posits that being abandoned by her family made Princess Pari experience Han, sadness about being abandoned and discriminated against. But because uh, she experiences sadness, she misses her family because 
you know, they left her. She f- And because of that, instead of trying for revenge, she channels her feelings of sadness into feelings of love, Myeonjong, and that motivates her to take on the quest instead to heal her family instead of trying to take revenge. I find it interesting that, the, or at least one implication is that they, like her family was being punished by the heavens for treating her so badly, but then she's the one that actually had to go on this huge journey to heal them. Yeah, yeah. she kind of has to prove herself, like, prove her value. Which... It's a little unfair because she didn't do anything wrong in the first place, but... Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's also... I, I... Yeah, I mean, it is unfair. I would, I personally feel like it's a little unfair, um, but... It's also kind of like, well, here am I, I'm showing you my value in the best way possible, which is super understandable. You know, like your daughters, your six daughters, they were raised in the palace. They were treated super well, but do they actually love you? No, because they aren't willing to do this, but I'm willing to do this even though you left me because I understand. Yeah. You know, like, so take that. it's my duty. Yeah. So take that. Again, it's like a you know she's showing you know that the piety that yeah that she's the most like moral and good out of all of them. Uh huh. Yeah, and I sort of look at the story as one about ending suffering and the desire to end suffering. So she goes on her quest to end the suffering of her parents, despite their cruelty towards her and the grief of being kicked out as a child. Even because of that, she knows she believes that her parents are good at heart, and she is the only person who can save them. So therefore, she must save them. Mm-hmm. But she is no stranger to suffering. Uh, her life could not have been easy. Being abandoned by parents could not have been easy. But she chooses to take on a more difficult task, to take on more suffering because of the possibility that she could end her family's suffering and potentially end further suffering for herself. Which I think, you know, again, it's very self-sacrificial, right? Yeah, I mean, I feel like she's kind of a like, classic heroic, like, protagonist figure. yeah. I mean, she has, like, a really heroic motive and also this whole, like, quest to, like, prove herself and, like... Yeah, I feel like she's just yeah, kind of a classic, like, saga hero. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, like, again, she's not motivated by revenge, which is a huge motivation in most, like, saga quests. True. She's motivated by her desire to help. And, like, do the right thing and also, like, love. And do the right thing. For her family. Yeah, and, like, she would be totally understandable if she was like, no, like, I'm not going to do this. You never did anything for me, so I'm not going to do anything for you. But I think she decided to, like, take the path that sort of ended that cycle of, like, cruelty. Yeah. And decide to sh- do the right thing and bring her parents back. Yeah, which she was she not, was she didn't right have to do. do that, but, like, the fact that she did it is also, I think it also shows mm-hmm. a lot of strength of character. Yeah, and I mean, like, also, like, what else did she have to do with her life, you know, I feel like? I mean, it's kind of like her purpose, right? Because she was sent from yeah. the heavens to, like, do all this. Yeah, like, her mom was having prophetic dreams, like, I'm sure that she, she was felt like born a, great. Yeah, she was doing something significant and, like, meaningful, and that's also, yeah. that's and it also was. good. Yeah. yeah, and it was. Yeah, so, like, again, I'm always, like, mm, about, uh, you know, self-sacrificial narratives, you know, I want her to feel her own value without the value of the parents that, like, sacrificed her. But that's not the point of the story. This is not, like, the... I feel like that's not, like, where we're coming from, you I mean, know? This is very, the like, Confucian kind of ideology that it's, yeah. like, you have to serve your parents even after they were horrible yeah. and abusive to you, which... Mm-hmm. In, like, a modern-day context, I would say, no, you don't have to do that. But, like, with the context of, like, way the past, I, I mean, it's nice. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I do think it's powerful to have that really, like, model of, like, Filiopati be this daughter, especially when in the context of a family that really wanted a son, and to show that, no, I'm good enough as a daughter. I am what you dreamed of as a daughter. Yeah, she has a value exactly how she is, and she is heroic and brave and clever, and even if her mm-hmm. father did not think that she was mm-hmm. valuable. Yeah. And so to close out, I also read a fun article about the view of afterlife and spirituality in Korean mythology. And so the story of Princess Bari is considered to be one of countless mythological stories in which the protagonist goes into the land of the dead and returns successfully. And like most of the other stories we've talked about, this can show a lot about how cultures view death. So in the case of this story, the land of the dead is not that different from the living, except there are things with divine properties and it's kind of hard to get there. So when Princess Pari is trying to fight for her parents' medicine, she lives, works, and gives birth just as one could do in the land of the living. And there's not a hierarchical relationship between the two worlds. The land of the dead is not underground. It's not in the heavens. It's like on the same plane as the land of the living. You just need to sort of walk far enough to get there is basically how it seems mm-hmm. seems to be the concept. If you just, like, keep going long enough, you'll get there. So it's not like, you know, it's not in the ground, so it's not, like, worse. Or, and it's not in heaven, so it's not, like, better. It just is. It's not considered to be, like, wholly separate from the land of the living. Yeah. They, like, coexist. Yeah. And so that's sort of reflected in other aspects of the of Muism as well. So, like, as I mentioned, there's ancestor worship and ancestor communication in this in the spiritual practices. And ghosts of the dead are able to visit their loved ones far more often than in many other cultures. They often appear on the anniversaries of their deaths to ceremonies that their families hold to honor them. And so this shows shows a general concept of the dead and the living being very close together and able to interact with each other more. The deceased family members are not disappeared, but but are simply invisible throughout Mm. the rest of the year. So they're still there, you just can't see them anymore. And then so that sort of shows that, like, you know, the land of the dead is in the same area. It's like at the same spot in the same place. You know, you just it's just a little separate. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, like the dead are still there. They're just a little separate now. And like that's not really related to what else we're discussing. But I just thought that was really cool and really interesting. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that is Princess Pari. I think she's a really cool, really interesting lady. And I had a really good time learning about her. Me too. I think it's cool that she gets her own, like, heroic quest because I feel like we don't see that much of that with female protagonists. Yeah. Oh, you're so... You're right. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, which, I mean, obviously that's our domain is female stories and folklore and mythology, but even Mm -hmm. so, it's hard to find female figures being, like, heroes. And, um, I... Would love to know about her story more in depth, though I'm sure that English resources are quite limited. But mm-hmm. yeah, she's cool. I like her. Yeah. And it's just, you know, there's so much regional variation that it's like, well, you can find out one version in depth, but like then there's another version that's like a little different. So mm-hmm. that's why the story is not like super in depth is because it's sort of trying to create like an Earth story out of, you know, the general of out of all the different versions that are generally being told. Yeah, of course. So thank you, Zoe, for telling us more about Princess Potty. Thank you for listening. Please feel free to donate to our Ko-fi and subscribe, listen to our other episodes, and follow us on Instagram and leave a review. Thank you.
Bye-bye. May the Ladies Podcast is produced, researched, and presented by Elizabeth LaCroix and Sarah Kenninger. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at MythaLadies and visit us on our website at MythaLadies.com. Our cover art is by Helena Cayo. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks.